James 1, 26 to 27, asks us the question, is your religion worthless? Is your religion worthless? Our passage this morning in James 1, 26 and 27 is pretty short, and it doesn't have a controlling metaphor that kind of guides the whole thing and summarizes and illustrates the whole point. There is one really colorful metaphor in the passage, um, but it, it doesn't so much cover everything and set up the main point of the two verses, so I'm not going to take the approach I've been taking, which is to kind of pull the metaphor out of James and then use that to set up the whole passage. Um, but the main idea in our passage this morning is a contrast between worthless religion and religion that is pure and undefiled. Worthless, worthless religion on one hand and pure and undefiled religion on the other. So we need to think about religion just for a minute <clears throat> before we land on James because the word religion has gotten a bad rap in recent history from the ubiquitous slogan, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, uh, which I've seen used to justify not going to church or doing all sorts of biblical things like reading your Bible and praying. Or Tim Keller's regular contrast of religion versus the gospel, where religion is used synonymously with legalism. Well, I don't really want to quibble over terms I've never really liked people using the word religion as a summary of empty Christianity because that's not how the Bible uses the word. And I think it's easy to actually throw away a bunch of good stuff under the head of religion if we just quickly discard that. But in our passage this morning, we see how the Bible talks about religion. The, the Bible is in favor of religion. James sees religion as a good thing that can be hypocritical and empty, but ought not to be. Uh, it should be real and vibrant and pure and undefiled. Religion is good, it's just important that it's not hypocritical religion, empty religion, fake religion. And all of this serves as a kind of conclusion to what James has been talking about over the whole last section about being slow to speak and quick to listen, about being doers of the word and not merely hearers only. So let's bend down and look at the word and remain with it for a while so that we can do it. James 1, 26 and 27. These are the words of your God. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So let's look at this contrast that James sets in front of us. First, we see worthless religion in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. We'll ask ourselves to begin with, what is religion? Religion refers to beliefs and practices towards God. What you believe and what you do with regard to God. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Hearing God's word and doing God's word. That's what's meant by religion. I read a quote recently from Martin Lloyd-Jones that's a great summary of what we've been seeing in James. He said, I spend half my time telling Christians to study doctrine 
and the other half telling them that doctrine is not enough. Pure religion, right belief about God, and right practice towards God. So this being the definition of religion, it's no wonder that many American Christians today are allergic to it. Knowing and studying doctrine, too hard. Obeying God's word, so legalistic. But these things are central to following Christ. Knowing true religion, knowing what his word says, and then living in light of it are foundational to Christianity. Jesus says this, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is relationship and religion, isn't it? Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, so we need to have God's words abiding, dwelling in us. We need to know the truth of Scripture, and then we need to live in light of it. He says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So doing the commandments of God, hearers of the word and doers of the word. And don't you want to abide in Christ? Is there more to life than abiding in Christ? To have the Father grant you what you wish, Jesus said. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. To abide in Jesus' love? Isn't this the heart of life? To have Jesus' joy in you and to have your joy be full. Doesn't that sound wonderful? These things come by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by God's word. And that faith works out in obedience to God's commands. So, Religion, beliefs, and practices towards God. So having a worthless religion means you're not abiding in Christ, and there is nothing apart from abiding in Christ. He alone has the words of life. Where else will we go? What else is there? If you gained the whole world but forfeited your soul, what would it profit you? What else is there for you but to abide in Christ? There is nothing else. And so James here gives us a warning about not having a worthless religion, not having an empty religion, a pretend religion that doesn't truly abide in Christ, that doesn't really have his word abiding in us, that doesn't really walk in his ways and obey his commands and abide in his love. And all of these riches that he's, Jesus has laid out for us and that we're looking at and that James lays out for us here. He warns us about having a worthless religion. The fact that this religion is worthless means that it lacks substance and content. It lacks reality. 
And Isaiah tells us how God views empty religion, outward religion, the appearance of dwelling in his word and walking in his ways without the reality of it. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 1, 12 to 17, in a passage that I think James must have been meditating on when he wrote these verses, Isaiah 1, 12 to 17, God says, when you come to appear before me, this going to church, right, arriving at worship, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So you think about true religion being about visiting the orphan and the widow in their affliction and keeping ourselves unstained from the world, we see this idea of Isaiah in the background. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, that's the orphan, and plead the widow's cause. Worthless religion hears God's word, but then doesn't repent of thoughts and actions that are out of line with it reads God's word, but then doesn't let that word shape your view of everything, your view of the world, your view of life, and then living in light of that. Worthless religion hears God's word, but doesn't live by it. It takes his commands as suggestions, or just a general call to be nice, wrapped up in some culturally outdated ideas, as long as we just kind of try to be kind and sweet all the time, aren't we mostly getting it? That's empty religion. What does James specifically point to as markers of worthless religion? He tells us what worthless religion looks like. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So we have two things that characterize chiefly Worthless religion, and that is an unbridled tongue and self-deception. An unbridled tongue and self-deception. And I think that those are summaries of the last two sections that we've been looking at in James. An unbridled tongue and self-deception. An unbridled tongue refers to somebody who's quick to speak and probably then slow to listen. But James has just told us to do the opposite. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. So we see this idea revisited in having an unbridled tongue. It summarizes all that we talked about, the person who talks and doesn't listen. And what a metaphor that James uses here, right? An unbridled tongue. What's a bridle? Something you put on a horse, it connects to a bit that goes in his mouth, and then you have reins that you hold on to, 
so that you can turn the horse wherever you want, or you can pull it back and stop the horse in his tracks. So in the metaphor, your tongue is like a horse, and it needs to be broken. You need to put a bit in the mouth of your tongue and be able to stop it when it needs to be stopped and be able to direct it to the left and to the right when it needs to be directed. That you can steer your tongue to be used for edification, for building up the saints and not for tearing God's people down. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4.29 about where you're supposed to direct your tongue. You're supposed to bridle it. Paul says, let no corrupting talk, that means corrupting literally means to tear down, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So if your tongue is just a wild horse that just runs off in whatever direction it wants, it will create all kinds of destruction, and it will show that your religion is empty. But a religious person has their tongue bridled. That's what James says. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. So a religious person has their tongue bridled. They control their speech. They use it intentionally to give grace to others. Not perfectly. James will later tell us that no human being can tame the tongue. But by God's grace, we can put a bridle on it and generally lead it where God wants it to go. And we thank God for his abundant mercy for our failures in this. But we do see that we are called to have bridled tongues. But the outflow of what James is saying here is that if if your tongue is not bridled, you are not a Christian. Do you see that that's what he's saying in verse 26? If your tongue is not bridled, You are not a Christian. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. If you use your tongue for slander, for boasting, for gossip, for malice, for busybodying, for witchcraft, for crude joking, for seducing, for lying, for flattering, for selfishness, for calling evil good and good evil, then your religion is worthless. But if your tongue is bridled, you can use it as a means of grace. What an opportunity you have with your words to actually speak grace, to be a means that God uses to give grace to the people that you're talking to. When you spend time with brothers and sisters, Are you thinking about how you can build them up by what you say? Specifically what Paul says, that you may give grace to those who hear. If you use your tongue for asking good questions of others so that you may listen to them and know them, if you use your tongue to encourage others, to strengthen them in Christ, to pray for them, to sympathize with them, to testify to the goodness of the Lord to each other, to remind each other of the grace of God in the gospel, to speak God's truth in his word to each other, to tell each other what's true, to give each other words of knowledge and words of wisdom, to prophesy to one another, 
to exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today, to stir each other up to love and good deeds, to rebuke each other with love and humility when it's needed. Then your tongue is being used as a means of God's grace. So we see that false religion is characterized by a loose tongue, and also worthless religion is characterized by self-deception, by deceiving your own heart. That's the second thing James says. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So the second thing is self-deception, deceiving your own heart. And I think this is an allusion back to the previous section we looked at. It said, be doers of the word. Look at James 1.22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Deceiving yourselves. So we're supposed to not only talk, but we're supposed to be quick to listen, bridle our tongue, and also we're supposed to then, after we've heard the word of God, we're supposed to do it and not only hear, but we're supposed to live in light of it. Because if we're, if we're hearers only and not doers, then we deceive ourselves, James said in verse 22. The one with false religion deceives himself. But don't do that. Don't lie to yourself. Don't fool yourself. Don't mask over your sin and your folly with a bunch of pious talk. Don't think that you're good with God because you know the Christian lingo or because you've done a bunch of religious things, but aren't walking in daily faith in Christ, which is worked out in daily obedience to the commands of God in your actual daily life. Don't think that you're good with God because you had an emotional experience related to God. Don't think that you're good with God simply because you once prayed a sinner's prayer without having had your life and heart transformed by the regeneration and the washing of the Holy Spirit. Don't think that you're good with God because you know a lot of doctrine or have read a lot of books if that stuff doesn't work its way out your fingertips in real daily obedience. Let me illustrate this. Several years ago, a guy came to Gospel Church And he seemed like he was on fire for the Lord. Now, it was long enough ago, he didn't end up being connected with Gospel Church. I doubt any of you know him, and so I think it's safe to use him as an illustration. I won't give his name. But this guy came to Gospel Church, and he was excited about the Lord. He was active in Bible studies. He came to everything. He was filled with questions and comments in Sunday school. He gave heartfelt-sounding prayers with a deeply reverent tone in his voice. He told amazing stories of going to unreached peoples around the world, being the first person to make contact with unreached peoples, bringing them the scriptures. And he wanted to talk with me right away about leadership in the church. He wanted to be made an elder right away. And in all honesty, as a young pastor, I was pretty impressed with this guy. As a young pastor who was looking for leaders, who was looking for help, I was pretty impressed. And he seemed quite mature, and the prospect of having his help was appealing. 
But at one point he mentioned his wife, and I noticed he'd been coming for quite a while and we'd never seen his wife. So I started asking questions about her, and he didn't really want to talk about it. He would just kind of drift the conversation back to his missionary endeavors whenever I would bring her up. So I kept persisting because I thought that seemed unusual. And I found out that he had a wife. She lived in town, but she didn't come because she couldn't stand to be around him. (laughs) And I started scratching my head. That didn't really match with this picture that I was receiving of him. And I came to find out as I continued to ask him about it and meet with him and dig into it that he often was committing adultery against her not like a long time ago before coming to Christ and had repented, but kind of ongoingly, even as he was doing these missionary activities that he was really proud of. And it came out that all of his kids were in deep rebellion because of his lack of leadership and faithfulness and even presence in the home. And then a bunch of other sins in his life came out and it became really clear that this man was not mature in the faith at all. He was not fit to be a leader in the church like he was asking to be because as the Bible says, if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And when I told him he couldn't be a leader in the church, but that I would help disciple him and work him towards that through all the sin that was coming out in his life, he quickly laughed and didn't want anything further to do with us. But what's the point? It's possible to make a really good outward show of piety and religion, but have that not line up with your daily life of walking in obedience to Christ. Jesus clearly warned about this kind of thing when he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do not be deceived. You can say Jesus is Lord You can prophesy, you can cast out demons, and you can do many mighty works in Jesus' name and yet not be known by him. What does he say is the difference? What does Jesus say in that passage? He says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Isn't this exactly what James says when he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Jesus finished his explanation about these people saying this familiar line, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, again, I think this is what James is meditating on, hearing and doing, everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. 
and great was the fall of it. So worthless religion is characterized by not bridling the tongue, but deceiving yourself. By talking instead of listening, and then even when you listen, not obeying and not doing the word, but being a hearer only. Now, in order to tell the difference between worthless religion on the one hand and true religion, we need to see what false religion looks like, but we also then need to see what true religion looks like. And this is where James takes us next. Verse 27 is about pure and undefiled religion. Notice the words James uses to describe true religion. He calls it pure and undefiled. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. First, we should stop and note, I wonder why he calls it pure and undefiled religion. Well, this is temple language. These words, pure and undefiled, refer to ritual purity and a lack of ritual impurity. Clean and unclean. Pure and defiled. This temple language. Under the Old Covenant, you could only approach God and come to his temple if you had ritual purity. You had to be washed. It was done. You were purified from uncleanness by the blood of a sacrifice and by washings and avoiding ongoing contact with unclean things, things that would defile you. And it's the same way with us. We are purified by the blood of the sacrifice, not by turtle doves or other animals like they were, but by the blood of Jesus, which washes us clean from all of our sin. We're made clean. We have our defilement washed away by the blood of Jesus and by the washing of the Holy Spirit. James says we demonstrate that purity, that pure and undefiled, we are able to come to God to approach him in true worship, worship that's actually able to approach him because it's pure and undefiled. We demonstrate that purity. We walk out that purity in two ways. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And secondly, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So again, two things. First, true religion visits orphans and widows in their affliction. Knowing God is about more than learning a bunch of stuff about his word. Though it involves that. Remember the Martin Lloyd-Jones quote? The first telling people they need sound doctrine and then telling them sound doctrine is not enough. Knowing God is about more than learning a bunch of stuff about God's word, certainly not less than that, but it involves an active care for those who are in trouble, for those who are afflicted, particularly those who have no one else to care for them. He highlights the orphan and the widow as the clearest example of this kind of thing, though you wouldn't want to say, well, you're not a widow, you're a widower, and so we got no help for you. Right? This stands for all those who are in need, but these are the greatest cases of need. But why, why is this so central to true religion? Why, when James only lists two things, now, we neither would we want to say, well, it doesn't matter if you read your Bible because James says true religion is just caring for orphans and widows and keeping yourself undefiled from the world. 
but he highlights these two things as central, as representative of the whole. Why is this so central to true religion, caring for orphans and widows and their trouble? I think fundamentally because this was you. Orphans and widows are you. You were in eternal trouble, eternal affliction in your sin and rebellion against God. You were under the wrath of God for your sin. You were without anyone to help you. You were in desperate need with not enough resources to help yourself. And God came to you. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God saw your trouble. He saw your affliction. And he was moved by his love and his mercy and his compassion to come to you in your affliction and to rescue you. And to show you his mercy and his kindness. And to save you and to give the Lord Jesus Christ, to give the life of his own son, to wash away your sins, to restore and regenerate you, to set your feet on the rock, and to give you everlasting life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And when that happens to you, it changes you, doesn't it? When you have been saved by mercy and grace, it transforms you and it teaches you to be a person that lives by mercy and that lives by grace. When you have received the love of God, when you've had the love of God shed abroad in your heart, poured out into your heart, it transforms you into a person who loves others, who moves towards those who are in need with mercy. It doesn't make you like that unforgiving servant who had who couldn't pay his debts and was headed for debtor's prison and, and, and came and pleaded his case and the guy forgave his debt and let him go. And then he went down the road and started choking the guy who owed him one day's worth of wages. That's not what the grace of God produces. The grace of God produces a person who goes and says, I have been shown mercy and care and love in my affliction and now I want to be a person who goes and shows mercy and love and care to others in their affliction. And I think that's why James highlights this, that true religion, the true sign that you have come to know God, because the only way you come to know God is by His grace. And so if you've come to know Him by His grace, it begins to transform you into a gracious person yourself. And so true religion is carried out in visiting orphans and widows in their trouble. Orphans and widows are people who've lost the natural means of care, aren't they? Children who've lost their parents, the ones who are naturally given to, to care for them, to see to their needs, to love them, to provide for them, to protect them. But orphans don't have that. Or a widow is someone who's lost their husband and has no one to provide for her and protect her. and She needs help from others. And so we are to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. They have trouble. They need help. The word for visit here is an interesting one. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The word for visit is episkeptomai. It's where we get the word episkopos, overseer. It's another word for an elder or a pastor in the New Testament, in the Bible, one who watches over, one who looks to the needs 
of others. This is more than simply going to somebody's house when it says to visit. It's to look over this, to look to them, to look over their situation. It means you watch over something to take care of it. You look out for orphans and widows. That's pure and undefiled religion. You look out for those who are in need. You give food to hungry brothers. You welcome brothers and sisters who are strangers. That's literally what hospitality means. Did you know that? The word hospitality literally means a lover of strangers. That you see the stranger and you don't recoil from them, but you love them and you welcome them. You clothe naked brothers and sisters. You visit brothers and sisters who are sick or in prison. And when you do this, to the least of the brothers of Jesus, he says, you do it to him. Isn't that something? So what about you? When you see people who have no one to help them, do you take it upon yourself to help them? Or do you shove off the responsibility by asking like Cain, am I my brother's keeper? Is that my problem? Yes. You are your brother's keeper. And yes, it is your problem. When you see somebody in need, do you assume that someone else will do it? that somebody else will take care of it. I'm sure somebody else will help them. There's a person, they're in need. Maybe even I feel a little bit of compassion towards them, but I sure hope somebody else helps them. But who did Jesus call to do this? All of us. Jesus calls you to do this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Sometimes we shove off the responsibility, asking, is this really my job? Sometimes we assume that somebody else will do it. Sometimes we just farm it out to the government, who's not equipped to do this. Well, I'll just vote for a Democrat, and they'll just print more money and create more inefficient institutions that will enable people to have all their needs met. But let me ask you, does James here call orphan and widow care an administration of the government or an act of true religion? Whose sphere do you think caring for orphans and widows is? I think it's abundantly clear right here. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Now, if we just think about this in the ideal or in the abstract, if our religion is all talk or just in our heads, it's really easy to talk about this and to place heavy burdens on people. But when you move to actually do this in the actual lives of real people with real needs, you find really fast that it's incredibly costly and it can become just overwhelming to move into the needs of people. Because we're all just kind of barely hanging on, like doing our best to make it ourselves. And we, we step into each other's lives to try to help. And we can really quickly become overwhelmed by the size and the magnitude of needs that there are. 
But I'm really thankful that the Bible is not an idealistic book. The Bible is very realistic in its application of how we do these things, of how we care for orphans and widows in their trouble. And so the Bible puts limits around these things or channels in which we do these things in order to keep the church from becoming overly burdened with needs. That's the language of the scripture itself. So when God calls us to care for widows, he gives us very clear specifics on how we do this and who does it so that the church doesn't become overly burdened with it and buried under the needs. It's a wonderful thing, so let's take a minute to look at it as we're thinking we need to be a people who care for orphans and widows in their trouble. Let's look at 1 Timothy 5, 3 to 8 and see what the Bible tells us about how we care for widows specifically in their trouble. Let's look at 1 Timothy 5, 3 to 8. I want you to have that open in front of you. Turn to 1 Timothy 5, 3 to 8. I want us to see that this is God's clear instruction on how to do this very practically and not just my ideas. 1 Timothy 5, 3 to 8. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now there's some more instruction here, and we'll turn to it in just a minute, but let's stop there. Widows are to be cared for by their own children and grandchildren. There's specific lines of how this is to happen. Widows are to be cared for by their own children or grandchildren. And as they're cared for, they are to be given to prayer with their hopes set on God and not self-indulgent so that they're a heavy burden on those caring for them. If they're self-indulgent, they would become a heavy burden on those caring for them. Now, in today's climate, like you're not allowed to say this. I love the Bible. It just cuts right through it all. Like you're not allowed to suggest, like a widow is somebody in need you can't assume that she has responsibilities. Like, you can only talk about how you help her. You can't talk about her responsibilities. But the Bible cuts right through that and just says, the widow has responsibilities, and those whose job it is to care for the widow has responsibilities, and everybody needs to be shepherded through their individual responsibilities. It's beautiful. Honor widows who are truly widows. So that's the call to the church. We honor Widows, if a widow has grandchildren or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So families have the, the obligation to care for the widows that are in their family first. And then he talks about the widows. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. This is a true widow. Remember he said, honor those who are truly widows. She sets her hope on God, and she continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. 
command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Widows are to be commanded not to be self-indulgent, but rather to continue in prayer. But if anyone does not provide for the members of his own household, Paul says he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's kind of like James calling your religion worthless. It's the same idea. Because you're not caring for the orphans and the widows. You're not caring for your own family members, your own households who have needs that belong to you. To make some return, it says let them... um, First show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is good and pleasing in the sight of God. Your parents have given so much to you, haven't they? And it's good to learn to make some return, if you have occasion to make some return to your parents in response. So if a widow, and I would think an orphan by extension, has family, then it's the family's job to take care of them first. Pure and undefiled religion would have you take care of your own orphans and your own widows first. We don't want to be like the Pharisees who wouldn't financially care for their own parents because they had taken the money that they would have given to their parents and then said, oh, this is Corbin. I gave that to God, so it's okay because I tithe. And so since I tithe, I don't need to take care of my parents because I took what I would have given to them and gave it to the church. That's classic empty religion, right? Empty religion 101. So if you have needs and afflictions of any kind, go to your family first. And if your own family refuses to help you, then you should follow Matthew 18 with them because the Bible is clear that these things should be met by the family first. And so you should go to them and tell them and show them their biblical responsibility to care for you and your needs. And the church's job then would be to help your family to see their role in caring for you. And if you have family members in need, know that it's your responsibility to help them. This is the first expression of your true religion. This is step one. So many people want to make a show of helping others in like a one-off grand gesture, right? But not do the daily work of faithfully caring for the needs of the people right in front of them. Their own spouse, their own children, their own parents, their own siblings, their own extended family. But that's worthless religion. God's not impressed that you went and worked for Habitat for Humanity for one summer, but never go visit your lonely grandma down the street. And when people come to the church asking for help, the first thing we should kindly and compassionately direct them to is to their family. This is where God has ordained for help to come from first. And if they are true widows and have no family to care for them, then we should be eager to care for them. Okay? This is not about us denying our responsibilities to care for widows. This is about us owning that responsibility in the way God has set it up. So if there are true widows, then we should rush to meet their needs with joy and generosity. We should see to their needs as Christ has seen to ours. And as Paul says, you should command them to set their hope on God and to continue in supplications and prayers night and day and not to be self-indulgent. So let's go on in 1 Timothy 5 about how God tells us to care for widows. We'll do verses 9 to 16 now. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children and has shown hospitality, 
has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. You see how realistic the Bible is about how to care for widows and orphans in their trouble in such a way that the church doesn't become overly burdened. Because as I said, it's easy to, to be a person who, ha, who has a heart for widows when that having a heart for widows just involves kind of feeling bad for them but never actually moving into their needs and caring for those practical needs. But when you step into those practical needs, it's very easy to see how the church could quickly become burdened with needs that are too much for the church to carry. And so I love the practicality of the Bible on this. Let a widow be enrolled. There's, there seems to be this idea that a widow can be taken on and just have all of her needs cared for by the church under certain circumstances. But verse 11 says, but refuse to enroll younger widows. There's a time when you would enroll and there's a time when you would refuse to enroll. If a widow is young enough to remarry, Paul says, she should do that so that she has a husband to take care of her. If she's young enough to remarry, then she should remarry and the problem is resolved. If a widow has shown a life of godliness and there's no one to take care of her, then the church should enroll her. Like, I think this means just taking care of all of her needs. Every need she can't take care of herself. The church just fully moves in and cares for her as her family would. If there are any relatives to care for her, they should do that. And the church is not to be burdened, is what he specifically says. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This isn't an insult to widows with family members, but it's just this very realistic assessment of those who truly have no one versus those who have family to care for them and a way of divvying this up so that the church is able to bear the burdens of those who need it. It's a realistic assessment of the capacity that a church has to care for people because a church can easily become overwhelmed when the family structure which God has put into place, is not doing what the family is called to do. Now, functioning this way in the church is sometimes perceived as less compassionate than just helping whoever asks, right? Refusing to enroll a widow, what? Not being burnt, talking about the burdens of a widow and saying the church can't be burdened with this? How cruel, how uncompassionate. But this is God's system that he has set up, the God who is more compassionate than you, the God who is more compassionate than us, he set up this system so that it could, he could help sort out and send the needs to where they go so that those with the greatest needs can be met first and most directly. Isn't that compassionate of God? And the more you get involved in the vast amount of need that there is in the world, 
the more you delight in God's wisdom of setting things up this way. So that the needs can be weighed and sorted and seen and met. Every need being met according to God's wisdom. So, are you involved in caring for those in need? None of this is to absolve you from responsibility. It's to put the responsibility exactly where it goes and to show when the church comes in as a whole and helps people. What about you? Are you involved in caring for people in need? Starting with your own family and really investing deeply in your own family until all the needs there are met. That's true religion. And then going beyond that to others beyond yourself and your own household to truly see to the needs of others beyond your household. Because we're going to have to be able to do that in order to care for those who are truly widows and orphans, right? We're going to have to first be able to take care of our own needs and then the needs of our family and our household and then our relatives. And once we've done all that, then we'll be able to go even farther to care for true orphans and widows who are beyond those things. That's what it's going to take to exercise true religion. But consider that the ability to do any of that starts with your own self-discipline, with hard work so that you have something to give to those who are in need. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is real practical help. This sounds suspiciously like work. Can't can't we just get somebody else to do it and then feel compassionate about it? Can't I just go on kind of one weekend trip and check off like I cared for people? No. This is working hard day in and day out so that you have extra so that you can give to those who are in need. That's where it begins. This is where true religion and orphan and widow care starts. As you control yourself, repent of sin, get a job, be disciplined and diligent to make enough money to provide for yourself, and then enough money to provide for a wife and kids, then to provide for an extended family, and still to have extra to give to those who are in need. That's not easy. That takes diligent work. And that's the work of love. This is what love looks like. This is pure and undefiled religion. God is not impressed with all lofty ministry ambitions if we are not doing this basic stuff. So look around. There are people in need around you. People who can use your help. Look for the needs of those who have no help, and you help them. Don't nudge the person beside you. Yeah, you help them. (laughs) You help them. I would encourage you not to jump right into the most radical thing you can think of. I've seen this crush people, hear something like this, and they rally, and that's right. And we're going to pick the biggest need and rush at it, and see if I can tackle it, and then get overwhelmed and crushed by that. Just start by meeting the needs of the people around you. Helping out truly needy people. Having your eyes open about the magnitude of the needs, and the need of your own sanctification from selfishness, 
as you're called to move to care for the needs of others. And having done that, be ready to step out in faith farther in even greater ways in caring for orphans and widows in their trouble. Consider fostering and adopting kids. There are kids who have no one to care for them. There are orphans, and it is the job of the church to care for them. Consider fostering children. Consider adopting kids. Look first in your own extended family, then to the broader church, and then out into the world. If you want to do that, if you think you hear that and you think, man, I'm reminded of that, like that's something that's been on my heart, that's something that I've wanted to do to care for orphans, to foster kids, to adopt kids, but you're intimidated by it because it can be intimidating. We have deacons who can help you figure it out. If you're intimidated by the finances of it, I can tell you that I've seen Gospel Church, this church, step up and cover all the adoption costs of adopting kids. Or the church was like, man, maybe your family is not called specifically to adopt kids, but you can give to help cover the costs of somebody else who's going to take them into their house. That's a beautiful way that we can all work together and pitch in to do this kind of work. I've seen it happen. God will provide. Like, Don't let those obstacles stand in your way if you are called to do that, to care for orphans in that very specific, very real, very practical way. Haven't you been adopted by God in Christ Jesus? You who were children of the devil, abandoned by your wicked father, the devil, and then adopted by God and welcomed into the household of God. What a beautiful way to provide and to care for orphans and widows. But remember that it begins with being able to take care of your needs and the needs of those around you so that you can go farther and farther. Lastly, pure and undefiled religion is to keep yourself unstained from the world. Personal holiness is foundational to pure and undefiled religion. It's to care for orphans and widows in their trouble. They're to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And secondly, to keep yourself undefiled from the world. Personal holiness is foundational to real religion. To truly know God and trust in Christ and love him is to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, to confess your sins and to repent of them daily. True religion is righteousness and obedience to God's commands by faith. You can't make up for being given over to the lusts of the flesh by being a person who helps others. It's both of these things together. How many people in liberal churches pride themselves with yard signs about all the causes they care about, but are compromised in the sins of the world, like practicing and supporting abortion, homosexuality, effeminacy, drunkenness, idolatry. Not going along with the ways of the world, keeping yourself unstained by the world is part of your pure and undefiled religion. There's a lot of defilement in the world today. We're not unique in being the church among a sinful people, but we are living in uniquely dark times, and there is plenty of defilement ready and waiting for you. All over Netflix, all over social media, all over the internet, up and down Main Street, in back alleys, in boardrooms, job sites, clubs, online communities, clinics, and on and on. 
There's defilement all over, just ready for you. I'm not saying you can avoid all of those places, nor should you, but you must remain unstained by the world. You must not go along with them. You must not believe like they believe and act like they act, but you must be a light shining in a dark place. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world, to do righteousness. And you can't just pick one or the other. Like, well, I'm going to do a lot of righteousness, but I'm not really going to care for others. That doesn't count. It's both of them. Nor can you pick the other, right? I really love to help people, but I don't really worry about that righteousness bit. It's both of those things together is what true religion looks like. Let's wrap it up. Let's summarize it and wrap it up. How do you know if your religion is pure and undefiled? How do you know that you haven't deceived your heart with worthless religion? John gives us a crystal clear answer that summarizes what James has been saying. 1 John 2, 1-6. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I love this passage because it shows so clearly both the free forgiveness of sins in Christ and the absolute call to live lives of righteousness. The aim is that you do not sin, that you keep yourself unstained from the world. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is no works salvation. This is no bootstrap salvation. This is forgiveness free and full in Christ Jesus by faith alone that works its way out in real righteousness. Are you convicted by the Bible today? Is sin revealed in your heart and life? Bring it to Jesus by faith, and you can find free and full forgiveness for all your sins. And know that Jesus' religion is not worthless. Jesus' religion is pure and undefiled. And that means that Jesus visits orphans and widows in their affliction and keeps himself unstained from the world. Jesus alone is unstained enough to be your righteousness before the Father. He alone has the perfect religion that's accounted to you for free by faith. And Jesus has a heart abounding with compassion and mercy and grace that he is moved to go to those who are in need. And so if you are poor in spirit and you need help and you need to be rescued from your sin and from your darkness, you call out on the Lord Jesus and he will hear you. And John says the way you will know that you've truly come to know him is that you will walk in his commandments and walk in the same way in which he himself walked. Let's pray.